0: Hello and welcome. This week, the National Selection presents Hands and Feet. Hello, welcome or welcome back. Thank you for joining us this week. For those of you who are not familiar with who we are, we are definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order. I am Naomi, and I'm joined by Nick.
1: Hello. And Nick.
2: Hello.
0: Nick, would you like to tell any new listeners who we are?
2: Yeah, we're The Natural Selection. Welcome if you're listening for the first time. We're just a group of taxonomists who wants to bring our passion for nature into the wild. Each week, we gather and talk about the natural world and the wacky things in it. We start off with a little bit of nature news, and then we dive into a theme each week and uh, talk about the wildlife and nature related to it. This week's theme is hands and feet.
0: Cool. How have you guys been this week? Have you had any exciting nature interactions? I think the only thing I have is I saw a bumblebee. Again, it it moved too fast for me to identify what it was, but I think it was some sort of like rusty orange color. So I'm sure I could probably figure out what species it was if I tried hard enough, but I have yet to do that.
1: Uh, the trees outside my window are starting to grow.
2: Yeah. They
1: grow leaves, at least. I, they're already
2: growing quite a lot. They're pretty tall. Yeah. I learned the German word for buds because that they're, but, everything's budding right now. It's knospen. But otherwise, most of my animal interactions have actually been uh, moths in my kitchen. They're back.
0: Well, yeah, I, I feel like you, <laughs> I, I vaguely remember you sending out, asking for a help last time when you had moths
2: <laughs> yeah before the winter set in and yeah. now the weather's getting well the weather isn't getting warmer but the year is is chugging along so the moths are back I saw
1: either a moorhen or a coot but I did mm-hmm. that classic thing of I think that every human being does where they like can't remember if that's a moorhen or a coot
2: mm-hmm. yep it's true did it have the white feet or the red bill it was on the water but it didn't have a red bill so That's one of them. It's one of them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so I think with that, we should get started on the news. Um, So I'm actually going to kick us off this week with news about T-Rexes. I went for something popular this week. So my news was published in Science, and it was created by researchers from the University of California and also the San Diego Museum of Natural History. So estimating the abundance of species is something that happens a lot for living species. And it's really important for ecology and different aspects and of evolution. But understanding the abundance of species that are extinct is is tricky, it's really difficult. So in this piece of work, they were looking at they were trying to estimate how many T Rexes they were. The lead researcher was very is very quick to point out that these estimates are very large there's a lot of uncertainty in these estimates but it gives some cool ideas of um they use models so they used a model between the relationship between body size and population density that's in extant species and they use this to try and model how many t-rexes i they think they were however there's like a lot of uncertainty because one they're not really 100 percent sure about everything about the t-rex's ecology And also they ended up leaving out juveniles. And that's because actually one of the pieces of research that you brought up, Nick, a couple of weeks ago about how juvenile T-Rexes seem to have a different niche and that they kind of take over this medium-sized predator or this theory that they take over this medium-sized predator niche. So they didn't include any juvenile T-Rexes. So their estimates for population size is that most likely there were about 20,000 adults at any given time there's a 95% chance that the real number lies between, between 1,300 and 328,000. So pretty pretty big changes there. Um, and therefore, the total number goes between 140 million to 4, 42 billion. Okay. And so their like average estimate is that there was 2.5 billion that lived and died overall which is it's, it's kind of cool. But I think mostly what they wanted to do, establish with this is kind of a framework for how to figure out how many animals there were. And it's it's really interesting because it can tell you kind of how rare perhaps some of the fossils are. So they used it to kind of figure out, you know, how many T-Rex fossils they have comparatively to how many overall they were. So I think they found that it was like a 1 in 80 million is based on how many Fossils they have that are pretty good fossils, maybe about 32 in total. And they've established that's maybe one in 80 million overall of how many T Rexes there actually were, which is cool. And hopefully, this might open up some more work in some like other areas that they can look at in dinosaur ecology.
2: It's nice to have a like immediate, almost immediate follow up that uses that juvenile T Rex study. T Rexes are just super popular, I guess. It's cool, but it's cool to see these like modeling. Methods being used to like in some way in this group to like this, they seem see, like new cutting edge modeling techniques. It's cool to see them in action.
0: So, animals' interactions with the ecosystem is something that is really fascinating. And the T Rex paper touched on that a little bit, but I think Nick, your piece of work touches on that even more. Yes, it does.
1: What's weird is people tend to love T Rexes and they're like favorite animals are like children and that, even though they're like murderous machines, but everybody hates wasps and like they're not nearly as mean as t-rex
0: parasitoid
1: (laughs) not all wasps are parasitoids yeah but all
2: wasps
0: most things that are parasitoid are a wasp though so
2: whoa is that true yeah i think so that's
0: am i saying things that are great greatly untrue maybe maybe i'm wrong but i think i'm i think i'm
2: so
1: um, wasps are often dismissed as sort of like rubbish bees, like people like bees because they pollinate flowers. And so sort of, there's an understanding of what bees contribute to the wider world, whereas wasps are often dismissed as not contributing anything. But this paper from UCL uh, looks to change that. And they were looking at the many different ways and the impact that wasps have on ecosystems, ecosystem. And particularly this was the Aculeata wasps which include the famous ones like Yellowjacket, but include most wasps. I mean, it's the group which bees and ants are also descended from, but it includes jeweled wasps uh, and other things as well, and, and most of the most of the parasitic ones. And what signified them originally is um, their ovipositor was adapted into a stinger. So all the stinging wasps are in this group, but some of these wasps have lost their stinger, either because they've completely lost their ovipositor or, um, yeah, they've, they've repurposed it back into an ovipositor again. But yeah, they're one of the most diverse and specious insect taxa, which is obviously really, really important when protecting them because they're doing such a wide range of things. But um, this paper sort of focused in on the things it's actually doing. But what this research from the UCL was looking to find is what wasps offer the ecosystem. And it turns out there's quite a lot. So I'm only going to skim through some of the things that might surprise you or um, might highlight the things you already knew. So one of them is predating arthropods. And they're very, very good at this. Even the parasites. um, There's famous ones that like predate tarantulas, like the tarantula hawk. Uh, And what this can do is actually protect insects and arthropod numbers because if they're predating ones that are eating smaller um, arthropods, this is a really, really useful for protecting yeah things down the food chain. Because if they don't do this, then there'll be an explosion of these predators and then a reduction in smaller insects. But they also predate on things which eat plants. And there are other things that do this, like birds. But what's really, really useful for wasps is because they have a shorter um, generational time, they can actually keep up with the fluctuating numbers of their prey, whereas birds struggle to do this because they might live for, uh, yeah, many years. Uh, wasps will be uh, tend to be born new every year, so their numbers will be uh, more closely linked to what they're eating. Now, what might surprise you is they're very, very important pollinators. We tend to think of bees as pollinators, but yeah, they, they've been observed pollinating all sorts of different things. Some plants exclusively use wasps as pollinators. So this study identified 164 plant species across six plant families and four orders that depend solely on aculeata wasps for pollination. One thing I particularly like, we mentioned them before, was orchids. They can deceive wasps by falsely advertising the presence of wasp food. So at least two species of orchid, they sort of use the food deception to trick uh, Vespa Germanica and Vespa vulgaris, they trick them to think they're a food source, so they visit and then carry their pollen away with them, which is pretty clever. But yeah, many, many, many species of wasps act as a pollinator for many, 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 many different species of plants, which is really, really important. And also as a food source. Now, you guys might not realize this, but in rural China, wasp larvae are the most popular insect food source. Their wasps and their larvae are often the most popular food sources in places all across Asia and South America. In the time where our views and reliance on meat production is changing, wasps as a protein source might become more and more important. And while we in the West might find this unusual, for the rest of the world, they're, they're pretty much used to this and will uh, commonly use insects as a food source. So, yeah, so there is a lot of value to be had with wasps. And this paper is sort of arguing that they should be seen alongside things like bees as importance to the ecosystem rather than just dismissing them as an annoying pest that ruins picnics. Wow,
0: that's really cool. I I think yeah, you're totally right. I I didn't realize all the things that they did, particularly the pollinator part. I think maybe some of the predation stuff, I maybe was a bit more aware of, but the pollinator stuff is really cool. But Nick, you have a a fun piece of research for us today. Something with a very catchy title.
2: Yeah, uh the in my news today, we're looking at the panda. And everyone loves a panda. Many people don't know the wild panda exhibits one of the few instances in the wild of attraction to fecal matter between mammalian species so what that basically means is you know how dogs sometimes roll in like cow manure that's like particularly weird to domestic dogs most wild mammals aren't attracted to other mammal species it's like really rare and not seen so often but pandas one of the sort of characteristic traits of pandas is rolling in horse manure and this is a study published in pnas two teams of researchers based in kunming and beijing but they wanted to know why pandas roll in horse manure and particularly what it just what it is about horse manure when it's cold outside so pandas like to roll in horse manure more when the ambient temperature is less than 15 degrees celsius and so the researchers were thinking maybe there's some sort of insulation going on or something else but after a couple of uh, forays they they narrowed their options down to a chemical in horse manure and they isolated the chemical and found that it, this is what was attracting the pandas and what prompted their rolling behavior and it's a compound called bcp or bcpo or beta karyophylline cariofiline oxide i'm sure you've you know that one um, but they tested in mice what the response to this was. And it seems that it decreases cold sensitivity by directly targeting and blocking transient receptor potential melastatin 8 or TRPM 8. Oh, I love these that just have like the most absurd names of bringing this in and making you guys listen to them. Uh, but basically, this is an ion channel that's sort of really old in the mammal lineage that deals with the cold, it, it makes them feel cold, essentially. Uh, so what these pandas are doing by rolling in this chemical is inhibiting that process so they don't feel cold. And apparently it doesn't have really any detrimental effects because it seems to increase their cold tolerance at low ambient temperatures. So pandas, to answer the question, roll in horse manure, just stay warm.
0: Wow, that's really fascinating. It really brought up a lot of questions for me as well. Yeah. Yeah, because in my mind I'm thinking that the reaction to being cold is something important so that you take yourself out of that situation. But I guess it's interesting that they can, it's just like their body is almost like overreacting to the cold and they're kind of using this as a way to stop themselves being cold. It's it's
2: interesting. I kind of was thinking about it like um, when animals take like a little bath in the summer when it's hot out. It's a way of like helping their bodies cool down or in this case, like helping their body... Not warm up necessarily, but sort of feel warmer.
0: Yeah, cool. Great. I think that rounds up our news for this week. Thank you guys for bringing your research to us this week. So with that, please do join us after this short break. We'll be back with our theme. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us again after that short break. We are back with our theme, which this week is Hands and Feet. And I think leading off from our news piece this week, Nick, you're going to talk to us a little bit about pandas again.
1: So, yeah. So I'm going to start with uh, a quick question for Nick, because he was talking about pandas earlier. But that's not their name. Do you know what their actual common name is? Is it the giant panda? Yes, it's the giant panda. And you might think that's quite unusual because why would you need to specify that it's a giant panda?
2: The tiny panda.
1: Well, the original panda was a lot smaller and the word panda originally never referred to the bear. It referred to the red panda. And it was only when it started being used for the bear as well, they had to distinguish it and they distinguished it by calling it the giant panda. Now, why would they even be given the same name? Because they, they, they don't look too similar. In fact, the, the red panda, I mean, it's, it's got a much wider range. It does have a very, very similar diet, and 95% of its diet is bamboo. Uh, it was also quite difficult to put into taxonomic classification. So originally, they were first described as members of the raccoon family, because they're about that size. They're not much bigger than a raccoon. But this was even quite a controversial classification at the time. But they do have A ringed tail, similarities in head shape and colouring outside of the red. They do look a bit raccoony. But later, using DNA evidence, they were assigned to the bear family. And you'd think this is where the story had ended. But with more genetic advancements, they've actually managed to place red pandas in their own independent family. That's Iluridae. And they're actually an ancient species in the order of Carnivora and are probably most closely related to the groups that include things like skunks, raccoons, and weasels. But they are a very, very old group they do something quite interesting with their feet. I thought you guys might like to know this as the theme is hands and feet. So what they do, like many other mammals, they mark things using scent. And these scent glands are actually on the bottom of the red panda's feet. And what it does is it releases a colourless liquid that we can't smell, but they can taste. And it tests the odours using the underside of a tongue, which uh, has a structure on it for collecting liquid and bringing it to a gland inside its mouth. And this is the only carnivore with this adaptation. So that's pretty cool. But that's not really why I want to talk to it, because this is where its connection with pandas comes. So the reason they thought they might be related is their hands. So they have five fingers, much like the giant pandas, and their five fingers sort of point directly upwards. not like us with our opposable thumbs. Their thumbs can also only bend like their fingers do, like like most uh, mammals. But they have something else. They have a sixth thing. They have something called a pseudo-thumb. Have you guys ever heard of pseudo-thumbs? Trying to think of a funny joke, but no.
0: Yes, I have, Yeah.
1: Do you know what they're made of, Naomi?
0: A part of their wrist?
1: Yeah, so one of their wrist bones has elongated towards roughly in the region where our thumbs sort of protrude from. And they can use this protrusion of bone to squeeze inwards, almost like an opposable thumb. And it means that they can hold on to bamboo. Which explains why both the red panda and the giant panda would have this adaptation. Because they're both eating bamboo. And this is really, really crucial to be able to hold on to it. What's also really interesting is just like the giant panda, which is a carnivore that eats bamboo, this is a carnivore that eats bamboo as well. Uh, And it actually still has a carnivore's digestive system. Yeah, There are a lot of parallels uh, towards it. Sadly, it has similar problems with the giant panda, where because it has a specialised diet, its range is being decreased and the gaps between their ranges are getting larger. And it does mean that the red panda is now endangered, uh, mainly due to habitat loss. Even though its range is quite large, uh, much larger than the giant panda, uh, yes, it's still considered something that we we should really be looking after.
0: Thank you for that. It's kind of a sad note to end on there, but it's fascinating stuff about its pseudo-thumb. Uh, there's also some other cool similarities that the red panda and giant panda have to do with eating bamboo as well. So it's really, it makes a lot of sense why people kind of lump them together, but but interesting that, that um it turns out to be a little bit further away from it. So I wanted to talk about kind of the origins of hands and feet. I decided to go kind of way back in time, and I wanted to talk specifically about tetrapods and the tetrapod limb. Tetrapods, which are, as you possibly guess from the the name, are meaning f- four legs. They're vertebrates with four four legs. Also, some things that don't have four legs anymore, but they're still technically tetrapods. But they evolved from early bony fish. So specifically, they evolved from lobed fin fish. So if you think about a silicant kind of fish that looked like that, one in particular from this time period is the Eusthen. You which is a lobe fish that would have been similar to the ancestral lobe fish. It was around the late Devonian when the tetrapods and kind of stem tetrapods started appearing. So I want to talk about some cool specific examples of fossils that have been found that kind of go through some of the sequences of adaptations. Now, obviously, it's it's not really in an ancestral order; like they weren't necessarily all derived from each other but it does kind of talk about the process of going from a fin to a limb and it shows some of the adaptations that these animals had that kind of helped in this process or may have been similar to what actually helped in the process. So um, one I want to talk about is a genus called Tiktaalik, which was a kind of amphibious animal So it would have been kind of found in coastal, brackish, marine environments, kind of swampy, maybe swampy freshwater habitats. And kind of the first stem tetrapods, they're not officially tetrapods yet, but kind of pre-tetrapods, would have used their limbs in order to kind of help them get over branches, kind of work their way through kind of shallow, murky water. So this one has some cool, interesting adaptations. The Tiktaalik. So it, it has a neck, which is really, really important for being outside of the water because fish don't have necks because they don't, they don't really need them. But when you're outside of the water, you want to be able to look around with a little bit more ease. So they also have strong shoulder girdles. So they have strong limbs, but they don't really have digits or hands yet as we would we would know them. An animal that does have this is acanthostega, so it, it looks very amphibian-like. It was it had eight digits, actually, on each hand, and they would have been linked with webbing. So it didn't have a wrist, and it wouldn't have been particularly good at walking on land, but again, it probably had this sort of lifestyle where it was mostly aquatic, but it could go on land when it needed to. Another fossil was the ichthyostega, which means fish roof. And it was kind of an, it's often called a tetrapod, but it's technically not. It's actually still a stem tetrapod, but it has much more obvious kind of limbs. It's a a little bit better at walking on land, but it still doesn't have this, wouldn't have the actual kind of quadruped gait that some of the later tetrapods have. But again, it's got slightly better digits. It's got six digits instead. It's got slightly stronger arms, a better and stronger kind of pelvic and pectoral girdle, which is useful for, for movement, again, and kind of working with gravity outside of water. And um, finally, the last one that I want to talk about, again, because of kind of digits and dactylae is the tuller pluton, um, which was kind of useful in the study of dactylae and digits, because they thought that the initial tetrapods had five digits. So they thought that once kind of tetrapods became tetrapods that five digits was the ancestral form but actually this one was the one of the first tetrapods to be found and it has six digits so they realized that the five fingered condition actually developed a little bit later than than the first couple of tetrapods that were found Worth definitely a google of some of these they're kind of interesting looking and like i said there's not necessarily in that order there are kind of some There's also some problems with timing because some of the earlier fossils that have been found, which are actually trace fossils, so their footprints are kind of putting the date a little bit earlier than some of these. But I thought it'd be a cool intro to kind of how we got some fossils that showed how we got from fins to limbs.
2: Cool. That's super. I don't. uh, It's such a complex world back there, the transition from water to land. But a really cool place to do some research.
0: Yeah, definitely. A very, like you said, very complex. So definitely brushed over some other really cool features they had just focusing on limbs and digits and things. But, but yeah, some, some cool ways that animals started off with limbs, you know, it didn't just stop there. They didn't just get four limbs. Other animals have developed even further and have limbs that are adapted to certain ways of life and certain modes of doing things. I think Nick, you wanted to tell us a little bit more about some limb adaptations.
2: Totally. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm digging this limb conversation because I think on a previous podcast, I talked a bit about arboreality or living in trees and the adaptations to that. But today I want to talk about fossoriality or living, at least digging in the ground. So this is uh, a bit about digging in mammals. And there's digging in other lineages as well, of course. Uh, And one of the more interesting, I think, outside of the mammals is digging in uh, limbless Animals like snakes. Uh, digging snakes, the way they dig is really interesting. But we're talking about hands and feet today. So that's what I wanted to bring to the table. We're talking not just about digging, but also about burrowing and scratching. One of the most common, to just dive into the morphology, the most common types of adaptations is that um, there's some changes in the forefeet in, anim- in mammals that dig and in the structure of the pectoral apparatus or like the shoulder girdle uh, and around the chest. And then also in the pelvis, for reasons that we'll see in just a minute. So there's three different types of fossorial adaptations, or digging, scratching, burrowing adaptations in mammals. We have the most common, the scratch diggers. We have the hook and pull diggers. And finally humoral rotation diggers and I'll go into the first two very briefly just to mention them and I want to talk a bit more about one sort of humoral rotation digger that's pretty well known so the scratch diggers they basically use their claws they the sort of long and constantly growing claws to excavate burrows and sometimes they can be also just digging for food but often these are burrowing animals and the hind feet this is where the pelvis comes in are often used to disperse the soil that accumulates underneath the animal while they're digging with the forefeet. So they'll do some backward kicking with their hind feet or just push it out with their hind feet to get the earth out of the burrow as they go along. And so those are the scratch diggers and the most common type. Then we have the hook and pull diggers. And that's, I mean, I think you can pretty much guess what what I mean when I say that. But basically, the animal that does this, there's only one type of animal. It's the anteater. And they have enormous claws that they actually walk on their, they walk on their knuckles, so the claws point up as they walk. And what they do is they hook their claws around the structures, whether it be uh, in the ground or a termite mound that they want to eat, and they'll pull really hard with their claws. So their claws and fore paw are incredibly robust, and then the pulling muscles and the pulling bones are also very robust. So they can pull with incredible force, to rip holes into termite mounds and anthills and rotting logs and things and then stick their incredibly long tongues uh, in, in and extract the insects from as a brief fun side note they're using the barbed tip of their incredibly long tongues so they've got a lot going on for them there in the anteater world that's for another podcast though so what i really want to talk about today is the humeral rotation digger so that's talking about long axis rotation of the humerus twisting of the arm as the digging happens sort of like you imagine uh one of those spinning drills that goes into the ground pulls up dirt from below but not quite like that because it's on a limb so one of the things that does this and the most commonly known is the mole and wow did i not know how cool moles were before i did any of this research so they have a ton of different musculoskeletal modifications throughout their bodies because of these they're really good at digging they're one of the most accomplished digging tetrapods and they build not only incredibly long tunnel systems sometimes extending hundreds of meters and in some cases over a thousand meters a literal kilometer of mole tunnels Uh, but they also have really powerful digging strokes so with each lateral thrust of one forefoot of a mole they can generate a force equal to more than 30 times their body weight. So in comparison for humans, the strongest human weightlifters are really the maximum limit is like not they can't even lift 3 times their own body weight when they're pushing with both hands. But moles can do this not only once but over long periods of time. So for example, the 80 gram European mole, Talpa europaea, was observed to form full four mole hills in 90 minutes. That weighed a total of 15.5 kilograms, which would in a human be equivalent to excavating about 10 tons of earth single handed in an hour. Uh, and that's me on digging. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff to, to look at here with hands and feet. But the adaptations in the body really, really change what you can do in like a mechanical sort of way. It's really interesting.
0: Wow. That is. I, yeah, I've never really thought about molds and how impressive their digging ability is. But now I know. So from one type of adapted forelimb, I'm going to jump into a slightly different adapted forelimb. I wanted to talk about bats, but I wanted to talk about bats and kind of the adaptations of how they maybe evolved their wings. And if you're aware, so bats, their wings, they're the only mammals that have powered flight. And their wings uh, consist of a membrane of skin that's stretched between their dramatically elongated digits. So their third, fourth, and fifth digits are elongated, and it, their membrane is stretched to their forelimb. So, some of the things that they kind of would do to look at how this might have evolved is one to look at kind of fossil bats the earliest fossil bats, is from about 52 million years ago. So we're talking about the Eocene. There's a couple of different ones that I found. So the Icarinosteris index and the Oncyonosteris finae. That sounded like I was confused, but there's an EYI there, so not sure how to pronounce that one. While they're kind of primitive in terms of standard bats, they're effectively fully functioning flying bats. It's not really giving us any sort of, like in my previous kind of tetrapod example, it's not kind of showing us maybe the stepwise adaptations. As soon as bats seem to appear in the fossil records, they're, you know, recognizably bats. There are some kind of ideas roughly about how flight might evolve. And there's either kind of a top down approach where you go into a tree and you glide from a tree or the ground up approach where you kind of propel yourself upwards from the ground Most people kind of go towards the first one for bats. They kind of think that they're related that it's similar to gliding mammals and that they maybe they use a kind of top down approach. And this first fossil does have some tiny claws with their with their digits and they think this might suggest that it climbed trees. So this kind of does support this a little bit. But initially, because of this kind of idea, they actually thought using morphology that bats were related to flying lemurs. So in the order Dermoptera, and they thought that that's what bats were most closely related to. But actually, this has kind of changed a little bit looking at more molecular evidence. With molecular evidence, they were able to find that. So the bat actually is kind of within its a monophyletic group. The microbats and the megabats, they're both a min- min- monophyletic clade, and they're nested within the group which is the Laurasia theria. So their closest relatives are kind of carnivores and ungulates. So that's what they seem to be related to. That's kind of their latest findings. But one thing that they have been able to do is because they couldn't look at the morphological evidence, they turned to molecular evidence and I won't go too deep into the genetics of it because one, I will confuse myself and two, it'll take a little bit too long. So What they've done is they looked at kind of comparative studies comparing mice and bat digits. And this has helped them kind of figure out maybe how kind of the bat wing evolved. So they have really similar gene expression. But the way that they adapt the morphology of their wings is kind of by changing the timing, the intensity, or where the gene is expressed, which I think is really fascinating. So they use the same genes, but they use it in a slightly different way in particular they seem to express certain genes for longer and that causes the elongation of these digits additionally something that Nick has touched on in a previous episode is talking about apoptosis and the the timed kind of cell death and that's something that happens in most vertebrate limbs that you know there's a membrane between the digits and then it those cells in between uh, die off because of apoptosis but In the bat, that's stopped and they keep the membrane because that's part of their wing. So there are kind of some genes that are also involved with that as well, which are kind of linked in the development of the wings. So I thought that was a cool piece of research that that they've done looking at kind of how the same genes can be used in different ways to make a bat wing out of a vertebrate limb. That's handy. (laughs) I see what you did there.
1: (laughs) It's quite a feat. (laughs)
0: bats are i think an animal that i found so fascinating also there is something that comes up a lot in culture and mythology but you want to talk about another animal that has kind of an interesting mythological aspect yes i do
1: i want to talk about a very unusual animal so it's even been quite difficult difficult to classify well when it was discovered the classification of this animal was debated Because it has continually growing incisors, uh, which are very similar to how rodents' teeth grow. They never stop growing. It has feet like a squirrel, where its toes and its hair colouring, and its tail especially. Um, But its head shape is also similar to a feline, uh, with similar eyes, ears, and nostrils. But what it is, is in fact a primate. A very, very strange primate. It's an eye-eye. And the eye-eyes are a type of lemur. That can only be found on madagascar and what's very very interesting is as i'm sure you guys know madagascar is the oldest island in the world and has huge numbers of endemic and strange species and it was presumed that all lemurs were descended from one lemur or lemur ancestor that had arrived in madagascar on the back of a raft uh sort of a natural raft and then all lemurs were descended from that but this eye aye is so unusual there's actually a theory now that it might have been a second wave of lemurs that came along. And it's not actually from the same common ancestor. It's got a a further back uh, relative. And it's the world's largest nocturnal primate. And it's got a very unusual method of finding food. So there are only two animals in the world which use this, which is using its fingers for percussive foraging. So the only other animal to use this pergussive foraging is the striped possum, which can be found in uh, Australia and Papua New Guinea. But what this means is it basically fills the same ecological niche as a woodpecker. And this is quite unusual for a primate to be doing. And to do this, it has very, very specialised hands. And if you look at them, they are the creepiest thing in the world. So it already looks quite strange because it's nocturnal. It's got these giant eyes, a bit like a cat. And it's got old looking hair. It just looks very, very strange. If you look at its hand, it has one exceptionally long middle finger. And not only is it long, it's incredibly thin. It looks like Tim Burton designed one of its fingers. (laughs)
2: That's that's really good. That's a really good one. (laughs) I've been Um, obsessed with the I.I.'s hand for years, and that's the perfect way to describe it. Because of this, and its percussive maintenance,
1: what it will do is it'll go along the wood, and using this long middle finger, it'll just... until it finds what it's looking for, which is a hole. And this is because these holes have been caused by insect grubs, and that's what it wants to eat. And if it finds one of these holes, it needs to get inside. This is where the constantly growing incisors come into play, because at this point, they're able to gnaw into the wood until they have access to this hole. They will then use that same Tim Burton finger to stick it inside this tiny little insect hole, that's why it has to be so thin, and drag out the insect and eat it. And this is a really, really good way for it to get food it is in fact an omnivore so it can also eat fruit and it's been recorded doing so it's even used this finger to access things like coconut and get the flesh inside uh, as well as other different fruits but because of this because of this method of foraging it needs exceptional brain power so as lemurs go it has the largest brain to body size ratio of any lemur so it's probably the smartest lemur out there because this method of hunting uses a lot of brain power now, they are endangered and their numbers are decreasing. And this is for a couple of reasons. One is a deforestation in places like Madagascar. But the other one is, as you touched on, Naomi, the beliefs of what the I.I. are. They are seen as an ill omen, that they might be a harbinger of bad news or death, that if one enters your village, that this can be a sign that something terrible is about to happen. So you must do anything to stop it. And quite often, local populations will kill the I.I. on site. Which, ironically, I suppose does make it a harbinger for death, but sadly, its own.
2: Yes, yeah,
1: very ironic, I feel. It's its own death omen. So yeah, so there is, uh, it's now illegal to attack I.I.'s. Uh, Some people even suggest that they use this long finger to pierce the aorta of people in the village and kill them. Yeah, but there is legal protections against them because they are endangered as well. Interestingly... That's not the only fascinating thing about their hands and feet. One, like the squirrels, uh, I mentioned that they have opposable big toes, which enable to, them to dangle from branches, which is really, really useful. But what's really cool is they've got a pseudo thumb. They only just discovered this in 2020. But yeah, they have the animal with the weirdest hands got weirder hands. It has a pseudo thumb to help it grip branches.
2: Two pseudo thumbs in one episode.
1: Yeah. Who's got two pseudo thumbs and likes eating insect grubs?
2: This guy.
1: <laughs> Just as a visual, Nick
0: folded in his thumbs as well when he did that. <laughs> so I think to end off our episode this week, Nick, we have one final section for us. And I think it's neither a hand nor a foot, but something that is very useful and can be used like one.
2: Yeah. So I wanted to talk today about pentapedal locomotion in kangaroos. So it's sort of cheating. It's, I'm not talking about their amazing feet, which are worth their own, you know, theme section of an episode, but only their tail. So if you ever watch a kangaroo in a movie, they're probably jumping fast. Uh, they hold the tail outstretched behind them, and they bound on their two enormous, amazing feet, really fast, actually. And they keep their front arms, their forelimbs, in front of them. Uh, up in the air so really the only thing touching the ground is the two feet at once and then they spring off them and that's their sort of quick movement but if you ever see a kangaroo at the zoo they're likely doing something a bit different they'll often graze with four limbs on the ground and their tail so their head is can get close to the vegetation they feed on and they keep their limbs to staple the front part of their body now their feet provide a big platform for them to balance on. But they also keep their very thick, muscular tail on the ground for support. And it seems they sometimes even balance on it and push off of it while lifting both their hind limbs up at the same time to move their hind limbs, sort of scoot their hind limbs forward. And for a long time, researchers who were interested in locomotion in the kangaroo thought that they just sort of used it as a sort of crutch or like a walking stick and they didn't they sort of thought that it was like like you'd let you use it as a lever to then move the feet forward but it turns out in a study that was just recently done by a team of researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder they looked at the biomechanics of what was actually going on here and they found out that actually what's going on is that the kangaroo isn't using its tail like a cane or a walking stick or crutches it's actually using the tail to push off the ground with as much force and forward movement as a whole another leg. So it's basically walking as if it has five legs, and that's where we get the term pentapedal locomotion. So it has the front two on the ground for balance, and then the back two that sort of provide the this platform, and then the tail gives it the forward movement. And it's actually the same about the same amount of forward pressure as a human leg while walking gives against the ground. The only instance of this in the mammal clade but maybe also in the tetrapod clade as well. And I think it's pretty cool that one of the living vertebrates sort of has a third leg in this way, or a fifth leg, if you count the front two. Wow, that's cool. I was at the zoo a couple of weeks ago. I think we, we talked about it a bit on the podcast. But I stopped and looked at the kangaroos for a while, and I hadn't read this article then, but I saw the tail is incredibly thick. It's like, i it's really astounding when you're up there looking at it. I don't know if you can see it in pictures online, but it's worth a Google. So yeah, have a look at the kangaroo and see if you can find any videos of it walking around slowly using its tail as a little backwards facing foot. It's pretty cool. Cool. I just have one more little note if you're interested in these kangaroos. And I said that I wouldn't talk about this, but I guess I should should mention and give a little shout out to the amazing foot of the kangaroo, which is one of the most incredible uses of elastic potential energy in the animal kingdom. We have a bit of this in our own feet. The um, Achilles tendon, it stores a lot of kinetic energy as we walk, and it actually helps us move forward by converting that. When we walk, it stretches behind us and then springs forward as we walk. And that's connected to the back of our foot in the, the calcaneal heel as a sort of hinge motion. If you look at the kangaroo, it's like a hundred times that. They've got like a massive tendon, same tendon, and a very flat foot uh, that, that really sort of lets them, it really does a trampoline sort of thing where they can land on the foot. It stores up the gravity of their landing and then springs them off into the next thing. So they actually have to use very little muscular energy except for the first spring. And then they just use, like, gravity, sort of spring them along like a pogo stick. It's a pretty cool adaptation to save energy.
0: Cool. I also didn't realize that about our own Achilles tendon. That's fun fact as well. So with that, that does bring us to the end of a very interesting and insightful episode all about hands and feet. I hope you've broadened your search history of some interesting animals. <laughs> we, we will be back next week, so please do join us then, where our theme will be snakes. So hopefully you can slither along to that one. So from all of us here at The Natural Selection, that's goodbye. Bye.
1: Bye.
2: Pirates often are missing a leg or have a hook for a hand. Isn't that right, Nick? Bad. Don't take that. Don't use it.